Verse 17. Now in those days, while he was teaching, there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting nearby who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. This is the first mention of the Pharisees in Luke's gospel and the teachers of the law. And they have come and they are associated with Jesus' teachings. And their sole job is to monitor all those around them to make sure that they're staying in alignment with the Torah and then to teach everybody what the proper alignment to the Torah is. They are the rule keepers. They are the ones who are going to make sure that we never go back into exile ever again. They have heard this new teacher, Jesus, and they need to make sure that he's staying within the boundaries of the Torah. Because if he isn't, he's going to screw it up for everybody else and they're going to go back into exile. They are here to inspect him. After Jesus healed and sent them to the priest to be inspected, now they have shown up to inspect Jesus. So if you want a deeper back, deeper understanding of who the Pharisees are, then go to the intertestamental history teaching on my website. Just then, as Jesus was teaching, a man showed up carrying a paralyzed man on a stretcher, and they were trying to bring him in and place him before Jesus. But since they found no way to carry him because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and they let him down on the stretcher through the roof tiles and right in front of Jesus. I always want the insight of the owner of the house. Like, you know, like, no matter how amazing Jesus' teaching is, I think the Chosen show this a little bit, but even years before the Chosen, I was just like, the only thing that I could ever think of as a kid when I'm watching, listening to these stories is like, the person who owns a house is probably thinking like, this is so amazing. Jesus is in my house. He's in my house. This is so cool. He's teaching. What the crap? What are they doing to my roof? What the heck? And then they get lowered down and they're like, why aren't you rebuking him, Jesus? He messed up my roof. Do you know how much it costs? Best, you, you know that's everybody's response. Nobody's going to be thinking like, oh, paralyzed man that Jesus is going to heal. You're just thinking, my roof. Okay? And so... This is lowered down. They have no regard. All, they're just so single-minded towards the healing. That's what they desperately want. And, so, and they're rude enough to even interrupt a very good teaching. Okay, he didn't even get to make his point. But Jesus halts everything. He halts everything. And when Jesus saw their faith, now this is very important because it's not just the faith of the man, it's the faith of the entire group working together. He sees the faith of the group, the community, the, the, the love of the, the friends that are willing to go through anything to get this guy to be healed. And he's paralyzed. And Jesus saw their faith. He said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now the experts in the law and the Pharisees begin to think to themselves, who is this man who is uttering blasphemy? Who can forgive sins except for God alone? In case you don't fully understand the full ramification of what it means for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven, the Pharisees come in and they tell you exactly what that means. So Jesus says your sins are forgiven. Now the other thing I always thought too as a little kid as I'm listening to this is like, the guy who's on the mat now who just ruined the other guy's roof (laughs) and doesn't need to be forgiven is now lying there and he's been told your sins are forgiven. And all I can think is he's lying there thinking like, I didn't come here for forgiveness. I came here to to walk. Like, that's not what I paid for. But Jesus knows that the deeper problem is not that he can't walk. The deeper problem is that he needs forgiven. I mean, he can walk again, and eventually he'll die, and his fate is still the same. But only when he's forgiven does his fate change. And so Jesus knows that that's the deeper issue. 
And so he says, your sins forgiven. Now, this is why only God can do this. Because I know a lot of people are like, sometimes like, well, we forgive people all the time, but that doesn't make us God. It's one thing for you to come up and like insult me with harsh words, or you slap me in the face, or you run over my dog, or something like that, and I say, I forgive you. What that means is I no longer, I no longer demand my pound of flesh from you to pay for what you've done. But if I come to the room and I don't know who you are and you don't know who I am and you've never offended me ever in your entire life and I just start going to you and say, you're forgiven and you're forgiven and you're forgiven. That's a way different kind of a thing. And if you've wronged her tremendously and insulted her and offended her and she's clenching her fist every time she sees you and just wants nothing to do to tear into you for what you've done to her and I go up to her and say, you're forgiven, all your sins. You're, you're thinking, what? No, you have no right to do that. You have no idea what they did to me. Only God can forgive you for sins that have not been wronged against him. And in a way, all sins are truly wronged against God. And so it's one thing for me to say, I forgive you of what you've done to me, but you still stand guilty before everybody else that you've harmed and hurt, and you still stand guilty before God. But only God can universally wave his hand over the whole lot and say you're forgiven of everything, everything that you've ever done to anybody and anything that you've ever done to me. And only God has that authority, and that's what the Pharisees recognize. They recognize that Jesus never met this man. There's no way that this man has done anything to Jesus ever in his life. And yet he says, you're forgiven. And he doesn't say just you forgiven of what you did to me. Your sins are forgiven. And so this is a very clear claim to God. And I know a lot of atheists go through the Bible and they're like, Jesus never claimed to be God. You just made that up as a church to have power over people and oppress them. The problem is, yeah, you're right. He never said, I am God. But he did claim to be God on multiple levels. If I claim to know everything and be all-powerful and nothing can stop me, and I know everything that's going on in your mind, everybody's going to take that as a God claim. And then not only that, he knows our thoughts. He can actually read their minds. So not only is he claiming to be God by forgiving sins, but to us as the readers and to the Pharisees, he proves it because he knows what they're thinking. So Jesus knew their thoughts, hostile thoughts, and he said to them, Why are you raising objections within yourself? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and walk? This is a very loaded question. Because Jesus asked, is it easier to say, get up and walk, or easier to say, your sins are forgiven? And the answer is yes to both, and no to both. So here's why. It's way easier to say your sins are forgiven, then to get up and walk. On one level. Why? Because if I say get up and walk, what do you all expect? To see it, right? And that's going to be really hard for me to do. I mean, even if I'm a doctor and I can do amazing knee replacement surgery or whatever, right? That's going to take time and effort and money and energy. And even then, there's no guarantee that it's all going to work out well. And so if I say get up and walk, that's really hard to say. Because it's going to require a lot of work and a lot of effort. But if I say your sins are forgiven, nobody sees that happen. I can say that all they want. and It's not like an aura appears over your head and things begin to change. We're just going to take your word for it. So it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven. Because 
Nobody can prove me wrong, and nobody can prove me right. It is what it is. But they get up and walk, that's hard. But on another level, it is way harder to say your sins are forgiven, because only God can do that. Or even a doctor can make this guy walk in the right time period of human history. And so this is what Jesus is saying. On one level, theologically, it's way harder to say your sins are forgiven. Because it's impossible except for God. But another level, on a practical, materialistic, visual proof level, it's much harder to say get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, I'm going to say get up and walk. So that you know that I can forgive sins, I'm going to do the thing that you can see. So you can't see the forgiveness of sins, but I'll do the thing that you can see to prove that I can do the thing that you cannot see. Now, what does this mean? It means this. The only person who can forgive sins is God. And if Jesus is a liar or some crazy lunatic who's blaspheming God and claiming to be God, there is no way that Yahweh would ever give him the power to do a miracle. There's no way God would give him that power. So if I'm standing up here saying, I am God, I am God, I am God, and you're like, prove it, then if I truly am God, God would give me the power to do something really miraculous in here that nobody can do except for God. And if I can't do it, then you all know that I'm a liar or a lunatic. But if God gives Jesus the power to do this, then one cannot ever deny that God has approved of Jesus Therefore, one can never deny what Jesus claimed. So to prove his claim is legitimate, he makes the man get up and walk. And only God can physically make him walk. Now, yes, again, I did say, well, a doctor can do it, but a doctor can do lots of work, and even then it's not always guaranteed. But this guy, without surgery, without physical therapy, without anything, he just stands up and starts dancing and walking. Atrophied muscles everything. Fully healed, fully restored. And no doctor can do that. No doctor will ever be able to do that. To speed up the natural healing process to happen within seconds. And so he does what only God can do physically and visually to prove that he can do only what God can do spiritually and theologically. Forgiveness of sins. In this sense, he is claiming to be God. And not just that, he goes full-blown and says, so that you may know the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. Now, we already talked about this on the man passage, but remember that comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, where Daniel sees a vision of this son of man figure, son of man meaning that he's human, walking before God in heaven, and he's coming in the clouds, which means he's divine. He's not coming with angels. There is no blood of Jesus, and he comes right up to God, and the only way you can get into the presence of God is if you're completely sinless, so he's sinless. And then Yahweh hands him all power, all authority, and all sovereignty in a kingdom that never ends, which only belongs to Yahweh. So Daniel has a vision of a human that is sinless, who is God, and who is Yahweh Almighty. And from that point on, anytime anybody hears the phrase son of man, it means human. It means this God, man, figure. And before, son of man just meant I'm human. But after Daniel's passage, the Son of Man title becomes fully loaded with divinity, Yahweh, authority, an everlasting kingdom, everything. Sinlessness, human. And so nobody ever calls themselves the Son of Man anymore. And then hundreds of years later, Jesus shows up on the scene and he starts calling himself that more than any other title. He never really calls himself the Messiah. 
He never says, I am God. But what he does say all the time, I am the Son of Man. I am the Son of Man. And that is basically, I am the sinless human that is Yahweh God, who rules over all creation. He just punches the Pharisees in the face multiple times. I'm going to forgive sins. I'm going to heal it to prove it. I can read your mind, and I'm the Son of Man. And they're just like, oh, like getting blown back by this, and they can't handle it. And then they just become furious. And now the plot to kill him is put into motion. Take up your mat and walk. And he does it. He stood there and picked up his stretcher and they'd been laying on him and went home, glorifying God, which is the proper response. Then astonished seized them all, and they glorified God, which is the proper response. And they were filled with awe, saying, We have seen incredible things today. So this is Jesus' miracles as he moves through. As we see Jesus begin his ministry, we see an absolute uniqueness to who he is, what he says, and what he does that has never ever been seen in Israel and we have never ever seen in any of our churches or our culture around us. The main thing that you should get from these passages so far is this the absolute uniqueness of Christ's words and deeds, that he speaks in a way that nobody talks, an authority that nobody exercises, with a command of the scriptures that no one has. And then he does deeds that no one has ever done before, instantaneous miracles that touch in every realm of human life in a way that nobody ever has. But even demonic powers obey him, and are rebuked and are driven away immediately. But the other thing that we're seeing is the correct response. With healing after healing, we're seeing that the correct response is repentance, submission, follow, and learn. Over and over again, as you glorify God. I would recommend you to read a book. It's called Putting Jesus in His Place. Robert M. Bauman. Now, it sounds like you're putting Jesus in his place, but that's not the point of the title. This book is an incredible book. It's a very, very, very scholarly book in the, the information that is being portrayed, but a very down-to-earth, easy read. It's a scholarly book in like the level of knowledge that's been given to you, but very down-to-earth and very easy to understand in the way that it's delivered. Okay, Very few people have that gift. And so he goes to this book, and one of the things he does is this book goes through the anacronym of hands. And the anacronym of hands is that he goes to the First Testament, and he shows you that God was given certain honors, H, given certain attributes, A. He's given certain names, N, and he does certain deeds, D, and there's certain supplication, worship, that is given to him. And that this only applies to God. Only He has these honors, attributes, names, and deeds, and people respond with this kind of a worship. So what this author does is he goes through all those, and then he shows how Jesus also takes on the same honors, the same attributes, the same names, the same deeds, and the same supplication. And the idea is he's showing you that Jesus clearly sees himself and interacts with people as God. 
and that the gospel writers are clearly portraying and proving to you that Jesus is God. And it's a very good read. It's, it will stand up against any atheists, the Jehovah Witnesses, anybody that you want to talk to and help them understand that no, Jesus never said, I'm G-O-D, but he is claiming to be God in a cultural sense. If you understand the culture and the language of the First Testament, then you'll understand that the Second Testament is definitely making that claim. It's a great book to read as a companion to this class as we're going through. Because here's the other thing that's very important for you to understand. Everything that you ever want to know about Yahweh must be learned in the First Testament. We don't ever learn anything new about Yahweh in the Second Testament. We don't see Yahweh speak. He hardly speaks. He speaks twice in the Gospels, at the baptism and at the transfiguration. And then we don't see him speak ever again. You never see God really speaking in the Second Testament. You don't see God really doing anything in the Second Testament. Everything, if you want to know who God is, you cannot be a Second Testament church because you'll never know who God is. You have to know God through the First Testament. When Jesus comes along, he will never do anything new or say anything that God hasn't already said or done. Because the whole point is that you have to fully know who God is by the time the First Testament is wrapped up. Because when the First Testament is wrapped up, you have to know how God speaks and how God acts. So that when God comes along, he can't reveal anything new to you because Jesus has to come along and do the exact same things. And when Jesus speaks and acts in the exact same way that God does, then it's very clear to you that he is God. But Jesus can't do anything new or different than God did in the First Testament because then you can say, oh, he's a different God or he's something different because God never said or did that thing. And God can't do anything new or say anything different in the Second Testament because you might think that God changed or this is a different God that we're now talking about. And so this is very important to understand. God has to be understood and known through the First Testament because it's the only place. And then Jesus is revealed as that same God in the Second Testament, but he doesn't do anything new or say anything new that we haven't already seen. So that by the end of the two Testaments, it's very clear that they're both one and the same God. And that there's no doubt in your mind that this is not a unity between them. And that's the important thing. We learn God in the First Testament, and we discover that Jesus is God in the Second Testament, and then we bow down at their feet and we worship them. And that's the point that this book is making, this hands book, to help you understand this is how we can have confidence that who we worship is not foolishness.